Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You say, the Son of Man that you've raised up, shine your face upon him. Yes, that's exactly what it's saying, and it is in fulfillment of these words that we now read from John chapter 15 in our consecutive study of God's word from the gospel according to John. We come to the 15th chapter in which uh, we have these very precious words, the seventh I am saying of Jesus. You know, we've already seen that Jesus is the true temple and the dwelling place of God with his people. Jesus is the living water that Jacob's well cannot give. He is the new Moses who supplies God's people with the true bread that comes down from heaven. He fulfills and supersedes the feasts of tabernacles and so forth. He is the true light of the word, world. rather. And here in chapter 15, one more statement of what he is, the true vine. Here is the word of the Lord from John 15, chapter 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. Let us pray once more together then. Our Father in heaven, as these words were designed not only for the comfort, but as we have just read, for the joy and the fruitfulness of the disciples of our Lord Jesus. So we pray that as we abide in this word, in this word today, that you would inscribe its letters upon our minds, our hearts, and our very lives, that we would bear fruit to your glory. Gracious Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. The celebrated Hollywood director Cecil B. DeMille cast the British-born actor H.B. Warner to play the role of Jesus in his film, King of Kings. You might remember H.B. Warner as the pharmacist in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Well, while they were filming the King of Kings, Cecil B. DeMille kept Warner, his actor, on a very tight leash. He was concerned that the inappropriate behavior by the lead actor, inconsistent with the image of Christ, would result in some negative publicity for his film. 
And so DeMille enforced some very strict rules to ensure that Warner was Christ-like, or at least as Cecil B. DeMille imagined Christ-likeness to be. For example, H.B. Warner was not allowed to play cards, go to ball games, ride in a convertible, or go swimming. Now, it's true, Jesus did prefer to walk over the water, I suppose. <laughs> and swimming would not be very Christ-like, I understand. But DeMille, you see, did not want any slips, and none on the set. In fact, he isolated Warner on the set from the other cast members and even forced him to eat alone every day. You get the idea. Both Warner and his co-star, Dorothy Cumming, who played Mary, Jesus' mother, had to sign agreements that barred them for five years from appearing in any film roles that might compromise their holy images. What do you think happened? As you might expect, the regiment of rules and regulations did not make Warner a more Christ-like man. Instead, all this pressure to act in a Christ-like way without the power or love of Christ within drove Warner over the edge, and during the production of King of Kings, H.B. Warner descended into alcoholism. So when you see him later in It's a Wonderful Life as the drunken pharmacist, it's only halfway an act. I fear that too many Christians and too many Christian parents and too many Christian churches are taking the Cecil B. DeMille Hollywood approach to godliness. We need Christ's love, Christ's compassion, Christ's zeal, Christ's strength, and so forth. For when we come to the Lord, we find not only the desire, but also the power to live henceforth for him. In fact, I'd like to begin with a counterexample to H.B. Warner, if I may. George Whitfield, as a teenager, had chosen some rather unsavory and irreligious, sin-loving friends. And yet, suddenly, for an unknown reason to him, um, George found himself face-to-face uh, -face with the blackness of his own heart. He began to fear the judgment of God as a teenager and how these powerful impressions broke in upon his heart all of a sudden. He, he could never say, but there they were. And Whitfield resolved to change his life. He feared the judgment, and he began working much harder than ordinarily, or, ordinary people work who wish to change. He himself had a bunch of strict habits that he set for himself to follow. He also denied himself every luxury. He began fasting twice a week. And yet after all this, he realized it wasn't changing him. Oh yes, his life was very different. But he said it was like painting over rotten wood. He was still the same person on the inside. And then his friend gave him a book. It was a very good book. It was Henry Skugel's Life of God and the Soul of Man. And he read the opening pages with wide-eyed amazement. I'd like to read you the same thing that he read that made all the difference in his life. I cannot speak of religion, but I must lament that among so many pretenders to it, so few understand what it means. Some placing it in the understanding, in orthodox notions and opinions. 
And all the account they can give of their religion is that they are of this or the other persuasion and have joined themselves into one of the many sects wherein Christendom is most unhappily divided. Others place it in the outward man, in a constant course of external duties and a model of performances if they live peaceably with their neighbors, keep a temperate diet, observe the returns of worship and frequent the church or the closet and sometimes extend their hands to the relief of the poor, they think that they have sufficiently acquitted themselves. Others, again, put all religion in the affections, in rapturous heats, an ecstatic devotion. And all they add is to pray with passion, to think of heaven with pleasure, and to be affected with those kind and melting expressions wherewith they court their Savior till they persuade themselves that they are mightily in love with him and from thence assume a great confidence of their salvation, which they esteem the chief of Christian graces. Well, thus are the things that have any resemblance of piety and at best are but the means of obtaining it or particular exercises of it, but frequently mistaken for the whole of religion. Certainly, but certainly, he says, religion is quite another thing. And they who are acquainted with it will entertain far different thoughts and disdain all these shadows and false imitations of it. They know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul. Or in the Apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed in us. Whitfield said, I, I never knew what true religion was till God sent me this. And suddenly he, he realized oh, he was going about it the whole wrong way. And this required a change in Whitfield's life that, that he couldn't make, but that Christ could. And he humbled himself and asked, and something happened. He wrote, after having undergone innumerable buffetings by day and night, God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold of his dear son. And oh, what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory was I filled when the weight of my sin left me and the abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. And it was the very beginning of the most remarkable and fruitful life as Whitfield learned then by experience what it means to live is Christ and to draw his, his strength and his existence, his sustenance from him every day. Now, I don't know if we have any potential George Whitfields in the congregation. Probably not. But this I am sure of. We all need to be taking the Whitfield approach and not the Hollywood approach to the Christian life, you see. And so let us consider this magnificent passage on abiding in Christ under three headings, God's activity, our activity, 
and wonderful fruit. Just three points. My first one is by far my longest. God's activity, our activity, and wonderful fruit. First, God's activity. I have on my shelf uh, a fair number of books on Christian discipleship. And of all the modern books on discipleship I know about, only one book, Jerry Bridges' book, devotes even a chapter on God's activity, God's role in our discipleship. In other words, if you ask people, if you take up any book and you say, well, how am I going to come to Christian maturity? How are you going to come to Christian maturity? People will tell me the things that they have to do. And there are things that they have to do, but they just do not think first in terms of God's activity. And this passage is clearly putting the cart after the horse or something like that. Uh, emphasizing first and foremost the role of the vine and the vine dresser in any Christian life. And we will need to arrange our lives around the nourishment of the vine and the work of the vine dresser if we are to any uh, advance at all. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. So let's start where we need to start. And it's not just so obvious that everybody already knows this. No, no, no. A whole, the whole secret of a branch's life and strength and vigor and beauty, the whole secret of a branch's fruitfulness is in the vine, of course. And the union between Christ and us is just as close and just as real and vital. In ourselves, we have no life at all, no strength, no spiritual power. All vital religion comes from him, is drawn from him. So joined to the Lord by faith, living or abiding in spiritual union with Christ, we can live and grow and bear fruit. We have some activity. He mentions that in the passage. But the point is, because he lives, we will live also. There is this... Uh, connection between a branch and a vine that Jesus uses to illustrate our union with him. Jesus is the true vine, he says, verse 1, and my father is the vine dresser. And he mentions two activities then that his father performs. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So let's consider then these two activities then of the vine dresser, the father, removing and pruning. The vine dresser makes sure that fruitless branches in the vine are cut off entirely, taken away, and burned. This is something that is absolutely required, by the way, in all vine husbandry. Some parts of a vine are very fruitful. Other parts will... Uh, just use up nutrients and the strength and vitality of the vine and produce only leaves and stalks. Y'all ever grown tomatoes? You know, you have to pick off all those suckers. You've ever pruned a, an apple tree? The very same principle. It looks rather shocking to see a pruned apple tree. But the vine dresser similarly must purge out all the branches in order that are not bearing any fruit in order that those that do will bear abundant fruit. And by gathering them out... A vine dresser will allow the whole vine to be much more fruitful. Now, I must pause for a minute and point out that study Bibles and so forth will give you a variety of 
hints on this verse, verse 2, troubles some theologians with a deficient covenant theology. You say, wait a minute, how can a branch in Christ be cut off, taken away, and burned? Didn't Jesus just say very emphatically back in chapter 10 that all those whom the Father has given the Son will be saved, and none shall ever perish, and that Jesus has died for them, his sheep, and he gives them salvation, and none shall snatch them out of his Father's hand, but they will follow him. Is Jesus now taking that all back and saying that you can lose your salvation? No. As I've explained many times, there is more to it than just saved and unsaved. That is the great uh, division of mankind. It's true. But there is another division. And in a very similar passage in Paul's letters to the Romans, he speaks about those who were cut off of the living tree because of unbelief. Or in Hebrews, a very helpful passage to compare, it describes those who began with Christ but then turned back from following him and in doing so have, quote, trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We must embrace this category as well of the people that are referred to as his people. And it is an outward distinction rather than an inward, but a real one. The blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified has been despised. And so there is both the objective and the subjective, even here in John, held before us. So the point is that this passage is not teaching us about becoming unborn again or unelect somehow. Uh, no, God's elect, of course, will bear fruit with perseverance. That's spoken of elsewhere. But the warning in this passage is that there is this other category of people. People who have joined themselves to Christ, baptized into Christ, are part of the body of Christ, but who do not bear fruit and sooner or later are purged and cast into the fire. I have to mention that because, as I say, many study Bibles have a variety of footnotes in verse 2 with a variety of explanations. The Ryrie Study Bible says that although a fruitless branch is cut off, the, the, the word uh, for purge is, is actually, or to be uh, uh, removed is actually also could be lift up. So you see, if a Christian is fruitless, well, God will just take him to heaven. They'll actually just lift it up to heaven. Nobody who's in Christ will ever perish. And so if they don't bear any fruit on earth, the carnal Christians, the Lord will just take them up to heaven Taking away, verse 2, can be translated lifted up. Arthur Pink and others have gone another direction somewhat further to say that the fruitless branch is not cut off at all, but just lifted up off the ground, just raised a little so that it can get more sun and it can bear more fruit too, which would be a possible reading, actually, if we didn't have verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Burned in the fire, not taken to heaven, not, <coughs> not merely raised up. 
cut off from the vine and thrown away. I, I do think that the standard traditional translation and interpretation is the only one that can make sense of the data. So if this passage is still a problem for you, I think a study of the Bible's covenant theology will help you and maybe reading some other people. Well, thank you for my little uh, sideshow of theology. Back to the main purpose of this passage. Uh, Jesus intends this as a sober word, as a warning, not for speculation, but for application. It's a warning to fruitless Christians of their end. Um, Judas, having just left their assembly, he used the same word about being clean. Back then, you are all clean, but not all of you. The word for clean and the word for purge is the same, as I'll explain in a minute. In context, Jesus makes this a word of sober warning. Jesus explains it elsewhere in the parable of the sower. There are some thorny ground hearers who receive the word and spring up, but they are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Or in the famous passage of Hebrews 6 about those who fall away, we have this picture of, a, of, an, of the earth that drinks in the rain that comes upon it, and some bears fruit useful, bears herbs useful by those for whom it is cultivated and receives the blessing of God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. All, all of these passages in Romans and Hebrews and Luke, these are all agricultural metaphors that makes, make the same pointed warning. Uh, that just uh, being attached to Christ in some sense uh, is not the same as bearing fruit for him unto eternal life. One time Charles Spurgeon had to take a vacation to recover from an illness, and he stopped at Marseille on the way to his vacation home in France. It was a cold night in the hotel. He had to call down to the desk to have him light a fire. And the owner of the hotel brought in both arms a large pile of dried up and withered vine branches to use as kindling. And he took them, he threw them into the fireplace and lit them, and the tears came to Spurgeon's eyes, and he thought of this passage, and he prayed, O oh Lord, may that not be me. A fruitless branch is of no use for anything except as fuel for the fire. A vine dresser will take away the fruitless branches. They will be gathered and burned. And so it is that this is a warning for the nominal Christian, we might say. For those whose uh, lives are consumed with the thorns and briars, with the cares and riches and pleasures of life, who bring no fruit to maturity, that these too shall be cut off. We go now from removing to pruning the other application of the vine dresser, pruning. God will regularly prune fruit-bearing branches for the purpose of greater spiritual productivity. 
Uh, here's one man who explains the process in layman's terms. In pruning a vine, two principles are generally observed. First, all dead wood must be ruthlessly removed. And second, the live wood must be cut back drastically. Dead wood harbors insects and disease that may cause the vine to rot, to say nothing of being unproductive and unsightly. Live wood must be trimmed back in order to prevent such heavy growth that the life of the vine goes into the wood rather than into the fruit. The vineyards in early spring look like a collection of barren, bleeding stumps. But in the fall, they are filled with luxuriant purple grapes. The method seems cruel. Nevertheless, from those who have suffered the most, that is the branches, there often comes the greatest fruitfulness. That just as the vine dresser must prune a vine, he's saying, so must our Heavenly Father prune us so that we will bear much more fruit and more of that likeness of, of Christ, as we'll see. Have you been going through the painful pruning process lately? You know, God sometimes lays us out on our backs so that we can look up at him. Even for those who know that this is the way of the vine dresser, it is uh, a painful experience indeed. I'm Amy Carmichael once prayed, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. She knew that the work had to be done, and she prayed that the Lord would do it. But she explains what a prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem in a hundred places from the sharp steel but with a tried and trusted husbandman, there's not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away, which it would not have been lost to keep and gain to lose. Exactly. Pruning hurts. Pruning sometimes looks awful. Green, flourishing branches and blossoms lying on the ground. What a mess. Courage is needed, and wisdom. Jesus, as he takes leave of his disciples, he wants them to know that there will be difficulty. There will be loss. Things are going to happen which look perplexing, ruinous. Understand that the vine dresser is producing fruit by such means. Have you suffered loss? Loss of perhaps pride or reputation at least, if not physical loss. Because from those who have suffered the most, there often comes the greatest fruitfulness. The latter part of this chapter, chapter 15, is going to talk about the persecution of the world. And you know that the loss of pride or reputation especially can often be a great benefit to Christians who are forced to stand up and choose their side, nail their colors to the mast. Yes, pruning is painful. But he says there will be joy and lasting fruit and fruit in the lives of others, as we'll see. It's also difficult to translate consistently in English, but the word for pruning here in verse 2 is the same word as clean in verse 3. Uh, just in another form, we get catharsis from it or cathartic, same, same word, the, 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 the cutting that cleanses. 
um, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He has already cut you out of that wild olive branch and grafted you in among the life-giving sap, as he says in Romans 11. The, this cleansing word has already done a great work in us. But now our Father is employing both that word and the circumstances of our lives that we might bear much fruit. And this is the work of God. We must abide in Christ. He will bear his fruit in us and the Father, both by removing those things from us that are, fr- that are fruitless and by purging or pruning our lives, will make us to be a fruitful, his fruitful vine. Um, all right, so that, that is the basic uh, teaching uh, of the passage of God's work in us. And uh, you might expect him to say now, okay, this is what God does, now you go bear fruit. You might expect him to say that, but you notice that is not the emphasis of the passage. The emphasis is striking. If this is the case with the Lord, what is it that we are supposed to do? Point two, our activity. Do you see what it is? It's repeated over and over and over again. Our activity is to abide in Christ. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and so forth. Again and again, this is the emphasis. If this is God's activity, what is our responsibility? Well, chiefly this. To abide in Christ. And this is the secret to the Christian life. He explains all throughout this upper room. You in me. I in you. Who was it? Was it Hudson Taylor who said my, my, my first responsibility every morning is to, when, I, when I get up is to make myself is to, in my little devotional time in prayer that I get my heart happy in the Lord. Something like that. I can't remember right off the top of my head. Um, This is the most important work of the day, he thinks. And he was a very fruitful and productive man. We must, you see, as one man put it, look to Christ, think his thoughts, form his purposes in us, feel his emotions and his affections in us, renounce all life independent of Christ, and constantly look to him for the inflow of life into us and the outworking of his life, through us. That is our main responsibility. Uh, The same truth expressed differently in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, you see that the emphasis is here. Again and again, if this is the situation with the vine and the vine dresser, what must we do in light of the fact that the nourish, nourishing life is all in him, in light of the fact that the Father cruelly, it looks like sometimes to us, cuts and hacks and prunes at our life? No, we must abide. And then we will bear fruit. And he says, fruit, you notice, and then more fruit, and then he says, much fruit. This is what it is. We must abide in Jesus. And what does that mean specifically? He mentions four things 
in this passage. Did you notice? Uh, I'll combine the first two together. Having his word within us and praying accordingly. Having his word within us and praying accordingly. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So you be my disciples. Okay, you have to receive his words into your heart, repeating them to yourself, dwelling upon them, and then praying them accordingly. Uh, by abiding in his word, praying and accordingly, we draw our life from him and bear fruit for him. More on this in a later sermon. Uh, he mentioned he goes back to this later in verse 9, keeping his commandments. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so, after taking his word to heart, dwelling on it, meditating upon it, praying accordingly, we then need to live out his words as the very truth of God. And in the passage we will consider next week, Jesus does select one single commandment that will be our rule if we are to bear much fruit to love one another as he has loved us just after we finish reading verse 12 this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends okay so by extending our lives in love for one another we abide in christ and in his word and so bear much fruit in the world, okay? So our responsibility in light of God's activity is to have his, to, to abide in Christ, to have his word within us and pray accordingly, keep his commandments and love one another. And what will be the result of this? Point three, my final point to you today, wonderful fruit, wonderful fruit. This life, is going to be characterized not just by fruit, verse 4, or more fruit, uh, what is it here, verse, verse 3, verse 4, uh, verse 5, he who abides in me bears much fruit, wonderful fruit, that everything that we can do to bring glory to God will be put under this heading. Uh, verse 8, you will glorify my Father in heaven, by bearing much fruit. So what is fruit? Well, frankly, anything that glorifies his Father in heaven is going to be that. But again, three things mentioned specifically. There is a life of Christ's joy. A life of Christ's joy. These things I have spoken to you, in order that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you want joy? You want the kind of joy that there is in Jesus' own heart. My joy, he says, that my joy may be in you. I cannot even imagine the infinite joy in Jesus' heart. Just hearing this is enough to give me hope and purpose. That the Lord's joy will be ours. That as we abide in him, that as we have his word in us and pray accordingly, as we keep his commandments and love one another, our joy... His joy will be made full, it says, in us. The Lord's joy will be ours. United to him, 
we will have joy. Second, a life of Christ's friendship. A life of Christ's friendship. This is his business that we're about. And so verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, says the Lord. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. Obedience is not what makes us his friends, but it is what marks his friends as he calls us to share his joy in doing his work. And he said, God, I I delight. I delight to do your will, O God. Psalm 40. So there is a life of Christ's joy. There is a life of Christ's friendship. There is a life of bringing Christ's life to others. That is the result of all our study of Christ's word and prayer and faithful obedience and love of others and so forth that we will then give glory to God forever in the life of other people. Twice already in this book, Jesus has described bringing eternal life to others as fruit. Uh, John 4, for instance, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together, uh, speaking of the people that believe. The Lord speaks in verse 16 then, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. There is going to be a legacy of your work that is going to last forever. Your circumstances may not look very promising, I understand. But whether it is speaking to friends of Christ and salvation or parents raising their children to love and serve the Lord or praying for the salvation of others or supporting the work of missionaries and evangelists, what an extraordinary thing it is that Christ should involve us, dignify us in his great work of bringing life to the world, eternal life, which he has been calling fruit in this book, fruit that remains forever. Think about it. People in heaven who forever and ever will see themselves in this way as the fruit of our lives in Christ. There will be a life of eternal significance, Jesus says, if we abide in him. Joy, friendship with the Lord, fruit that remains forever. That is the result that Jesus promises. In conclusion, some time ago I read a book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man by a very good author who had some excellent things to say. But I realize it was the title of his book, but it annoyed me over and over again. He said, it's all discipline. It's all discipline. He writes, quote, our spiritual discipline is everything. Everything. I repeat, discipline is everything, end quote. Well, no doubt we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. No doubt discipline is essential. But friends, abiding in Christ is everything. Everything. I repeat, abiding in Christ is everything. He is your life. 
says the apostle. And what that means, and how it works out, and what it produces now and forever needs to come before us in a new way. Especially if you're living the Hollywood Christian life. One time years ago, the Chevron Oil Company entered a float in the Tournament of Roses parade. It was a beautiful float, but in the middle of the parade, it came to a grinding halt. And every float behind it, of course, had to stop as well. The problem was that the Chevron Oil Company's float ran out of gas. The float's designers had done everything well, except get a fill-up, and they neglected to use the Chevron Oil Company's vast petroleum resources that were available to them. And the entire parade had to wait as a guy jumped off, found a gas can, and got a gallon of gas. Well, many of us are like this. We, we, are, we are doing all things well, and it's, it's looking good. And yet we're out of spiritual, we're out of spiritual gas. And, and what's coming? And what is the secret of it all? Is discipline everything, everything, everything? So many times in the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel was likened to a vine, a vine that was not bearing fruit, a fruitless vine that was the image of their spiritual failure. And Jesus says in that, in behind that, look, I am that son of man from Psalm 80. I am that true vine. To be part of the true people of God, you will draw all your life from me. Do you need life today? Maybe you are trying to do it the joyless Hollywood way. The sinful and proud heart of man says, you know, okay, I will, like Whitfield, I will first produce my own holiness and goodness, and then Christ will bless me, or I'll come to him. I I remember very clearly having that thought, how foolish. Don't you understand? Without him, he says in the passage, you can do nothing, nothing. How about humbly coming to abide in Jesus? to abide in his love. I am the true vine, he says. The seventh and final I am statement of this eternal Lord, this unlimited power. There is life in him. He says, you come to me for life. My father will prune. But as you abide in my word, making making these prayers, learning my ways, right, as you continue this, this discipleship, you will learn the meaning of the words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so you will bear much fruit. Well, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we desire to glorify you and to bear a lasting fruit unto eternal life. Save us from the common, joyless, and fruitless religion. Give us the peculiar, fruitful grace of your peculiar people. We do wish to abide in Christ and to dwell near your heart, to serve you in prayer and in love, 
that we would be not only joyful but useful. We long all together as Christ's branches to bear much fruit together. And we pray as we strengthen each other and minister to one another that you would continue your pruning work, fruit-bearing work, and that more and more should abide in Christ, cause us, his disciples, to abound as you know how to do. And to you will be